The podcast is brought to you by Robinhood. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs. I don't know what that is. Options. I don't know what that is. Cryptos. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Cryptos, I guess, like cryptocurrency, I guess. All right. All commission-free. You can get all of those things commission-free uh, at the Robinhood app. The only thing I do know about the Robinhood app is uh, that if you go to podcast.robinhood.com, that's podcast.robinhood.com, you get a free stock. You get like a totally, you get free stock. What well, a free stock! Um, if you just go to the app, <laughs> I mean, and I did this, I did it. They, they, they. Uh, I, I downloaded the app. It's very cool. It's a very easy to use app. What do and you they mean did a they free stock? What are you no, talking about? No, no. They gave me a free a, share of stock in a company. A free share of stock in a company, but it's the way they do it. Very interesting. The way they do it, you. It's like a scratch off ticket. <laughs> Like the kind you get from like a lottery. So I I got my free, I'm like, okay, give me my free stock. Um, they don't call it a share of stock. They said free stock. So you just get a free stock and then they give you three boxes and I picked one of the boxes and um, I got uh, a stock of a Sirius XM. So I am now a part owner <laughs> of Sirius XM, which is awesome, by the way. Um, yeah. I don't use SiriusXM, but I'm thinking as part owner of SiriusXM, they'll let me start naming some of their SiriusXM channels. I was thinking about this, like the the names they have for the channels, like the Garth channel, like that's not getting it done. So I I want to be able to, um, as part owner, I feel like I should be able to come in and say, you know, whoever in marketing is doing that, you focus on other things. I'm going to start naming all of the uh, stations on Sirius XM, which I think I mean, would be a lot of fun. I just, I don't, I'm, I don't think you know exactly how, <laughs> how business works. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's why I had to download the Robin hood app in order right. to explain to me how this thing works. So way, it's not, it's not ETFs. It's an e- ETFs. That's a, that's the plural of ETF, which is an exchange traded fund. It's like a, oh, see, it's like know. a stock that's like a, it's a, it, it's like an index fund, but it trades as a stock. So you're buying like one share of stock in like the Dow. 500 or whatever the the S&P 500 or the I, I was following you. I was following you about halfway yeah. through that and then I lost <laughs> you. you. You totally went over my head. It's financially. wonderful to hear someone read you like uh I mean I know about 4% more than you I would say. <laughs> but I but I'm also not reading the text of this investment strategy website. So it's I get to I get to stand to the side and make fun of you. Yes, for, for knowing slightly less than I do, <laughs> which is which is so great. It's just so great. So, uh, please go podcast.robinhood.com. Uh, Become no. a majority shareholder in Sirius <laughs> XM Radio. <laughs> Apparently, they also, by the way, it says in the ad, it says Robinhood is giving listeners a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint, so you could sure. become a majority Apple shareholder. Yeah, yeah. based on this, so uh, very exciting and. Uh, Thank you, Robin Hood. Hi, welcome to the podcast. I am Joe Posnansky, and with me is Michael Shore. Michael, welcome. Thank you for having me, Joe. You're welcome. 
You are so welcome. This is we, we talk about how exciting the podcast is every time we do it because it is always such a such an exciting moment. But we've never had a moment quite like this in the history of the podcast where we are about to preview a World Series between Michael Shore and his jerk son. Okay. I mean, how exciting is this? It's uh, what's interesting is that my jerk son, everywhere he goes now, everybody says the same thing to him, which is like, what are you going to do? Like everyone <laughs> is worried because they know how invested he is in both teams. And so they're like, there's a real thing at his school where like kids are kids and teachers and, and everyone it, they're wor- they're legitimately worried about him and, or just generally curious and concerned about which uh, way he's going to go. And it's causing a lot of um, anxiety, I would say. Now I have done, I think a pretty good job. uh, Great dad alert. I'm going to call him right now. A great dad alert. (laughs) Great dad alert. Before before, my friend Matt says that before he (laughs) tells you something that he did, that's very like small and ultimately meaningless. He's a great dad alert. I pick my kids up from school or whatever. Um, but great dad alert. I have managed to convince my jerk son. I believe that I've managed to get him to look at the glass half full side of this where like whatever happens, a team you love is going to win the world series, you know? Sure. Sure. And I think it worked. And he's, he has sort of taken that to heart and is now sort of, that's his stock answer is like, no matter what happens, it's going to be fine. And I'm going to be happy. So, uh, I'm, I'm hoping that that holds, you know what I mean? Like, I'm hoping that that doesn't, uh, that that doesn't fracture if one or the other team, um, you know, blows like sweeps or something. I hope that he doesn't. I think what he wants is like good, fun games. Well, of course, sort of what of we course. all want, right? That's what we all want. I I actually have a thought on this. I have a thought on 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 what we're going to see uh, with your son. But before we do that, I I should explain something very quickly because we we sort of just threw it out there last week uh, when we did the podcast, <clears throat> and we didn't mean for it to be. The way it came out. So we're doing our podcast. We are going to um, talk about the World Series. We're going to talk about um, the Browns, uh, which is yet another another chapter in in Browns love. Uh, we're going to do our sports movie time, and then um, and that's going to be the podcast. And that is our podcast. And then we are going to have a bonus draft. Uh, for people who uh, are members of uh, of the podcast. So you can become a member by going to patreon.com uh, slash Joe Blogs. We did this last week uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, the big one being we how long was last week's podcast? It was like seven hours or something. It was and feature film length. It was, <laughs> it, an, it was an hour 47 or something. It was. It was literally an hour 47. And we just said, that's ridiculous. We can't. We cannot uh, inflict that much podcast on anybody. It's not right. It's not fair. And uh, and so we sort of all came up to this. Well, we ought to just only true, true podcast lunatics deserve that much podcast. Uh, so so that's how we're going to do it from here on in. So you're going to get your podcast. And then if you really want more, God bless you. We love you. Uh, you can join over at patreon.com. Uh, forward slash Joe Blocks. Okay, so here's my thought on on your son that I wanted to to kind of get across as a theory that I have, which is, is there a chance he will figure out during this series which team he really wants to win more? Yeah, there is. I mean, I, I mean, I, look, he's a Dodger fan because it's his his hometown team. It's right. the first game he went to and everything, and he's a Red Sox fan because of my overall enthusiasm and because he happens to have come of age 
at a time when the Red Sox have been really fun and successful, right? Like they, the first year that I would say he was aware of baseball really was 2013. So he, and he wasn't a fan yet, but it was like, Hey, that team that I like won the world series. And that then later became meaningful to him. But in general, you know, since then, both teams have been really good. The Dodgers are good every year. They win their division every year. The Red Sox are, especially in the last three years, have been phenomenal and sure. um, and in general have been really good. So it's hard to, when you when there's two teams sort of floating around in your house and they're both really good and they both have fun players, and in one case, you can go see them anytime you want, basically, because, it's you know, we live five miles from the stadium. It's it's you know he, those are his teams and so there's no compelling like he was a Clippers fan when he first got into basketball he's a Clippers fan he was a Clippers fan because they were a hometown team I forbid him from liking the Lakers <laughs> also right. the Lakers were terrible weirdly and the Clippers were good the Clippers had Chris Paul and Blake Griffin and we used to go to Clippers games we went to I don't know a dozen Clippers games and now the Clippers stink or at least they don't stink they're actually they're actually not bad but they don't have Blake Griffin and Chris Paul. And because of that, he sort of has lost interest in the Clippers. And I kind of get it. It's like you, you, it either like, you know, with the world, the way it is, he can watch every Warriors game and every Celtics game on TV. So you don't, hometown teams aren't quite as meaningful in a weird way because you can, you have access to all the other teams too. And, you know, we live a one hour plane ride from Oakland. So we can get, we we went to two Warriors games last year just because it was fun to see the Warriors. We saw the Warriors play the Celtics in in uh, Golden State, and so you know that it's it doesn't it, like the hometown teams have a higher hill to climb to for your loyalty now. You know, like it used to be just whatever the team was that you could see on television or in person that was what you were stuck with. It's why you're a Cleveland Browns fan. Right. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, but now that that's not true anymore for kids. They can, they have, they, you know, you can watch when you can watch every single Celtics game on a large high definition flat screen, whenever you want it, it doesn't not feel like that's your hometown team. If you want that to be your hometown team. So, you know, he, there's a chance that he'll break one way or the other, but I don't think he will because there's no real reason. There's no compelling reason to choose. You can sort of, the world is your oyster as a sports fan. Now, I believe if these two teams were in the same league, I would kind of suggest to him strongly that he need to, needed to pick a horse and ride it. You know, like I, I don't, I don't think you can have, I don't think you can be both a Royals fan and a, a you know, and a Red Sox fan or something. I think right. you kind of got to, you got to have one AL team, and one NL team max, but there's no real reason he can't be both a Dodger fan and a Red Sox fan. And so I don't think he's going to break one way or the other. I don't know though. If the Red Sox, for example, end up sweeping the world series and they do it in a really fun way with like walk off wins in Boston and Mookie bets it's seven home runs in four games or whatever. It's possible that he could tilt that way. Or if the Dodgers win and we happen to be at a game where, uh, where they clinch and he watches them in person, jump up and down and celebrate on the mound and stuff. And like, the energy of that stadium. I think I said this on this podcast last year, but the energy in that we went to game one last year against the Astros, the energy in Dodger stadium was the most fun stadium energy I've ever been around in my life. It was so fun. The crowd was so revved up. Everybody was, he still remembers this. He got like a hundred high fives from strangers <laughs> in the concourses we had to do our car because of course he did, because he was uh, wearing a Clayton Kershaw Jersey and the Dodgers had won game one of the world series in, in with uh, like an excellent, um, uh, performance from Kershaw. So 
you know, if that, if we're at the clinch, if they win in five and we're at game five, he might say like, all right, the Dodgers are my team forever. But I don't think he will. Cause it's like, why, why give up another thing that's fun to root for, you know? Yeah. I, I, and, and by the way, I don't think that, I don't think that he would pick a, a team that he would permanently go forward with. I mean, there's no reason for him to do that. I meant more, it feels to me like one of the things, so it, it, a couple of points to make. One is you're a hundred percent right that it's funny because there's something about being when you get older uh, and and we talk about nostalgia and and uh, these kids today and they don't get it, whatever. What we're really often saying is, man, I didn't have the choices that the kids today have. There's there was no way I could grow up in Cleveland uh, in the 1970s and 80s and not be a Cleveland Browns fan. There there was it wasn't just because. Everybody I knew was a Browns fan. Everybody on my street was a Browns fan. You know, it was it was in the air. It was everywhere you went. Yeah, all of that's true. But honestly, I, what else could I do? I it wasn't like Chargers games were coming to Cleveland. I wasn't I wasn't watching any uh, anything. There was no Chargers on the radio. There were no Chargers on television. There was there was you know I, I saw Dan Fouts like twice in my entire childhood, you know, and, and so it wasn't like that. So the options weren't there. So, so clearly it's a much, much different situation for kids today, which I think is great. Even, even if now we want to complain about, you know, loyalty and, and hometown pride or whatever that stuff is. But my point was not that he would choose a team going forward, but that during the series, I wonder if he will at some point have a feeling which team he actually wants to win the series. I don't Not, know. That's yeah. a good question. I you like, like, right. Will he, in other words, if like, if he's watching a close game and one team is down four to three and then comes back to score two runs in the ninth and win five to four, will he be happy about that right. or sad right. about it or something like, will he have, will there be like a, immediate a kind of like undeniable gut feeling about of happiness or sadness based on one particular outcome. Right. I could yeah. remember this happened a couple of years ago. It was just very weird. I even wrote a little bit about it, but was watching Federer play uh, Djokovic in the final of something. I think it was Wimbledon. It might've been the first time they did not the first time, but one of the first times they played in the Wimbledon final. I can't remember which final it was, but one of the majors. And I went in Saying, I like both guys. I like both guys. I'm a huge Federer fan. I love Federer. But as I watched, I was like, you know what? I'm rooting for Djokovic. I, I, yeah. I sort of, I just didn't even mean to. I just am. I just, I'm rooting for Djokovic. It's, it's, it's not a choice I can make. It's, it's just somehow, some way, I want Djokovic to win. And, and I, I just wonder. I think that's awesome that he gets to to experience that feeling. But I do wonder. Uh, he's of that age where I do wonder if he'll have that feeling where he'll be watching and a team will be winning and he loves that team, but he'll be kind of like, oh, I really wouldn't mind if the other guys came back, you know, just, yeah. just that feeling, you know? I think he kind of wants every game to end in a tie. Right. <laughs> of course he does. He wants of every game to, to to go. He wants the series to go the way that the Cleveland Brown season has gone, which is every <laughs> game goes into overtime. <laughs> All right, let's break this thing down. First thing we need to say is, uh, you know, every every podcast, Mike comes on here, uh, and and the way we record this, you have to type in a a name in order to uh, to to go in, and and I always type in Joe because it's my name, 
and he always types in some something the, to represent uh, what we're thinking about this week. And this week you signed in as? The Kershaw narrative. The Kershaw narrative. So let's start there. Let's start with the Kershaw narrative. So Clayton Kershaw, um, well, well, you know what? What is the Kershaw narrative? What At, at this point in juncture in time, and after all these years, when Clayton Kershaw starts, uh, you know, starts against the Red Sox in in the World Series, what is the narrative right now as you would as you see it of Clayton Kershaw that he falls apart in the postseason or that he <laughs> underperforms? Let's say right, like that's right. that the narrative is that he um, that he isn't the same pitcher. He can't handle the big games. I mean, the funny thing is, is like in half of the last like whatever however many games you want to go back, he's either he's either brilliant or he gets touched up or whatever. But it's not like he he's not like. David Price's narrative is more accurate right. than That's Kershaw's. Right. Like Kershaw, you know, seven innings, three hits, one run The last in the last game of the NLCS. Last year in the World Series game one, it was a similar was line, I really think. really good, yeah. yeah. Yeah, like he's had a number of games in incredibly high-profile situations against the excellent offenses that are, that are great. He's also had games where he, you know, was pitching a shutout in the sixth inning and then suddenly gave up 11 consecutive doubles or something. <laughs> weird. Um, yeah, very weird. Like, But, like, also, we, it happens. It happens to yeah. people. Yeah. I mean, the, it is a little – There, he's had a few more of those games than one would expect him to have had given that he's been the best pitcher in baseball for a decade. Um, but it's also like a – you know, it's just one of these things. It's Sergio can't win a major. It's right. Phil can't win a major. It's, um, you know, Barry Bonds can't hit in the postseason. It's like they, there are just these things that happen in sports where we where the whole world decides that there's a certain narrative that is true and everyone talks about nothing but that narrative until that narrative is broken. But in Kershaw's case, it's weird because he has broken the narrative a number of times. He's rewritten <laughs> a number of times, but it still sticks with him. Like, and I guess until, like, you know, until he pulls a Jack Morris – and actually, like you know, which will never happen. No right. one will ever let him do that no anymore. Never do that again, right? But until he like until he clinches the World Series for his team with a you know eight innings of shutout baseball, no one. And even then, there will still be people who the next time he pitches in the postseason, <laughs> he gives up four <laughs> runs in the second. They'll go, well, here he goes again. You know, well, there's no escaping it at this point. Well, I have a theory about this. I have I have, I have a theory about this. One is, of course, we cannot tolerate the narrative. Right? The narrative is so annoying. Um, because it's, it's, it is, it's small sample size stuff. It, the thing, the thing that you would have to concede, I would have to concede as huge uh, Clayton Kershaw fans is that he, he does have a quirky postseason record. Like, like his, his regular seasons are flawless. His regular season resume is flawless. He's going to the hall of fame already. He's what he's 30. He's going to the hall of fame already. He's he's it's it's amazing. And in the postseason, there's it's spottier. I mean, he's had some very, very shaky performances and uh, has had some very good ones. But here's here's my theory about this. And you mentioned the Jack Morris thing. And I think that's that's perfect for this. If Clayton Kershaw would throw nine shutout innings, like a two hit shutout in the World Series, if you if you would do that or 10 in the case of Jack Morris. But if you would throw nine shutout innings, strike out 16 and, and, uh, and, and do that narrative is over. Narrative is over. I I don't, I mean, because people would say, because, 
because Greg Maddox had shaky performances too. And it wasn't like this narrative just chased him that he couldn't pitch in the postseason. It was okay. He's spotty or whatever, but, but he, you know, he had enough really good performances. The Kershaw good performances are 2018 good performances, right? They're seven innings, three hits, one run. They're eight innings, four hits. They're six innings, one run. They're, they're, what we know against this kind of lineups and these kinds of hitters, we know that's awesome, but they're not Koufax, Bob Gibson, Jack Morris, postseason crazy performances because those don't exist anymore. Just don't have them. You know, he had a chance to complete that Braves uh, game, and I guess he was not, he was a little bit dinged up or whatever, but I mean, he only had thrown 85 pitches or something and and they had the shutout going and they had a substantial lead and even then they didn't let him finish the game. So so I I think that's part of the problem is that he doesn't have a chance to put that one indelible unforgettable unless it's a game 7. If he has a game 7 then he could do it. Um but he has not he does not have the chance I think in today's era to have that indelible moment where it's inarguable. It's once you've thrown Nobody, Jack Morris could give up 700 runs in his next five outings and did actually pitch very poorly. Uh, again, doesn't matter. He had the one indelible moment. And I think that, that Kershaw hasn't had it and never will have it probably because that's just not the way pitching is anymore. Well, that's the, the that's the infuriating thing about these narratives, right? Is like, right. You look at Jack Morris's postseason history. Um, he wasn't that great. <laughs> No. <laughs> like he was fine. He was fine. And he had, he had that one game where he was really good at play, facing one of the worst offensive teams in <laughs> that's ever made the world series. But in, when he pitched for Toronto uh, in 91, 90, 92, 92, yeah, he, yeah. Toronto, he, I believe had a chance to close out the world series uh, and, and, and win the clinching game. And he got lit up in, in I'm going to look it up right now. Okay. So in, in 92, Two games uh, in the World Series for Toronto. He was 0-2 with an 8.44 ERA. Right. He pitched 10 right. innings, gave up 10 earned runs. I mean, he just got lit up. He had a 1.78 whip in 10. He got absolutely destroyed. And so, but no one cared because at the time, you know, the the he had already. It's like he had already, he did it. He did it the right way. He did it like he started off by being amazing, and then after that, everyone was like, if he screwed up, he'd be like, well, yeah, but he was still amazing that one time. As opposed to Kershaw, who's screwed up a bunch of times and now is trying to get out of the hole that he dug himself. I mean, if you look at Jeter, Jeter was, I used to, we used to like, on, when I worked uh, on the website Fire Joe Morgan with my friends, we used to do this all the time. Jeter was exactly the same hitter in the postseason same, as he was. Exa- like, it's scarily, I'm here, I'll look this up now. Okay, Derek Jeter, 162 game average for his career. Um, slash line, 310, 377, 440. Very good. Hall of Famer, obviously, no question. Postseason slash line in 158 games, almost exactly another entire full season in his career. 308, 374, 465. I mean, it's the same Same guy. guy. (laughs) He is the same. He was the exact same guy. And yet his nickname forevermore is Mr. November because one time he hit that home run, (laughs) that 240-foot home run to to right field (laughs) and Yankee Stadium. He had 20 homers and 61 RBIs in 158 postseason games. His 162 uh, game averages for his career were, uh, let's see, 15 homers and 77 RBIs. So fewer homers and more RBIs. Like, it's just, he's the same same guy. guy. And 
And Andy Pettit, if you look at Andy Pettit's postseason number, same thing. He was the same guy. There are people who are not the same guy. There are people who are great and become even better. Uh, and you could argue that Jeter was 1% better maybe in the postseason or something. Eh, same guy. Same, same guy. guy. But like Kurt Schilling, was, Kurt Schilling was legitimately better right. in the postseason than he even was uh, in the in the regular season. Bumgarner. Like, yeah, Bumgarner, exactly. Oh, like yeah. these guys who are all-stars, Hall of Fame, borderline Hall of Famers at least, and then they get to the postseason and they've just had these – they have these incredible runs. They have these just the un, untouchable, unhittable, whatever. But – it's just it's frustrating because once these narratives set into the public consciousness or at least to the baseball writers association of america's consciousness <laughs> right. they just tend not to ever leave and so i just like i mean again my son and i went to game one of the world series last year and watched something awesome happen and it doesn't matter because people are still like you know it, they they still believe that clayton kershaw can't like win the big one <laughs> It's absurd. It's so that that's the thing is if you could just say it in plain English. If you could just say in plain English, what is what are you saying? Are you saying Clayton Kershaw can't win in like in the postseason? It sounds so stupid. And yet, you know, I mean, this is this is all anybody's going to talk about when Kershaw pitches during the World Series. And it doesn't matter if he pitches well, because as you as you mentioned, last year he pitched really, really well in game one and then had a, one of those weird game uh, fives uh, ever. I've never seen really because he was given the, a four run lead twice and he and he gave them both back and just kind of was just weird. And, and by the way, he's another guy. His teammates never seem to help him. I mean, you know, his the Yasmani Grandal uh, defense during during the Kershaw yeah. struggle game and that was unbelievable. Bullpens always, you know, everybody talks about that Cardinals um, blow up where he did. He totally blew up, but it didn't help him that Pedro Baez went came into the game and then gave up a three run homer with his guys on base. Um, so like bullpen guys always hurt him. He's had a lot of bad breaks and and but I think I think that's exactly the point. One other thing about Jack Morris, Jack Morris when Jack Morris was going against um well, he wasn't going against him, but when he and Burp Lilevin were both on the ballot at the beginning a lot of people voted for Morris over and did not vote for Blylevin despite just an obscene difference in their career value uh you know toward toward Blylevin. And and then, you know, some people in the Writers Association were talking about, oh, I, you know, you, I would always start Jack Morris over Burt Blylevin. Jack Morris was a big game pitcher. Jack Morris was this. Jack Morris was that. They actually faced each other in the postseason and Blylevin won. I mean, that actually <laughs> happened. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Blylevin's postseason. I mean, he didn't pitch as much as because uh, as Morris did, but he was great in the postseason. He was like. If you're if that's your narrative, if you're defining <laughs> value on pitchers by that, like go look at Blylev and he was better. Like it's just crazy. I mean, the other thing, I was just looking this up. I forgot about this. So last year, game one, Kershaw, seven innings, three hits, one run, eleven strikeouts, right? He was terrific. And Brandon Morrow came in to pitch the eighth, and he was great for the Dodgers all year, and he threw a a, a, a spotless inning. Game five, Kershaw gets touched up, right? He gives up uh four and two thirds, only four hits, weirdly. Right. Right. Um, three walks though, which is weird for him and six runs and he's pulled the, the blown save, technically speaking, went tomorrow in the <laughs> seventh. Uh, he came in, retired. No one pitched to four batters, gave up all four hits. All of those runs scored. He gave up two home runs. <laughs> I mean, and suddenly like, yeah, he just like, 
he just got lit up like it happens those guys even the best relievers the best starters get lit up it's just that when it happens to kershaw everybody discusses it as part of this like bigger conversation and and look part of that is being clayton kershaw i mean part of it is when when you've set that kind of standard for yourself i mean supposed to that's supposed to not happen to you that's that's not happen exactly but i mean you and I both want him to pitch great. I mean, we just want him to just, we just don't want to hear this. You know, even against your Red Sox, are you willing to concede uh, like a, the Kershaw games in order to get this Kershaw narrative off the boards? I would love it if, I mean, I'm happy to get the win against the bullpen or something. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I don't want him to, to, to beat the Red Sox. I'm happy to have him pitch seven shutout innings if we win the game 8 okay. nothing if, by scoring eight runs in the eighth. Okay, as long as you get the win. Yeah, All right. All right, so that's that's one thing. But here's the thing I really want to get you talking about because I've been thinking about this. I've actually uh, texted you about it a couple of times, um, and and I've really been thinking a lot about this. So this Red Sox team is is very fun. It's very fun. It's objectively just a very, very fun team. The Dodgers team, not as fun. I'm not going to lie. Just from an objective standpoint, they do have some fun players on the team for sure. Um, but they've got a bunch of players who are just there. It's not that they're – there's anything wrong with them. They're just not, it's just not that fun. They're just not that, that the, the, uh, the, that whole fun factor just doesn't feel the same with them. However, the one guy I want you to talk about, because I've just been dying to, to get you to just go off on your love of this guy. Mookie bats. I, I don't think it's, it's not possible to be a more lovable player than Mookie bats. I just, <laughs> I really mean that. I just, it's like Jose Altuve, uh, uh, Baez, we've talked about him. We've talked about, uh, you know, the Francisco Lindor. Mookie Betts is just, he's just, oh my gosh. I, I just think, I want to just you to say it because I believe this to be true. I think Mookie Betts is your favorite Red Sox player of all time. I think he is. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The, the, it's, you know, he's only been on the team for a few years. So it's right. kind of hard. It's, it's hard to definitively say it, but I, I don't know how. I don't know who you can root for more right. than him. Like for so many reasons, there are so many things he does so well. The The ball that he caught in, in the final game of the ALCS, <laughs> which was basically identical to the one with the controversial interference call on it. The, the fact that he made that catch, it was so perfect because it was like without intentionally saying it, he was just saying to everyone, I would have caught it. Like, maybe it was interference. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe Joe West got it right. Maybe he didn't. Maybe the Astros fans are upset. Whatever. I would have caught it. Like, if if the fans hadn't been there, like, here's the proof. It's the exact same play, the exact same angle, the exact same trajectory. I caught it. He caught it easily, by the way. Like, yeah, yeah. it it was like you never doubt it. And then, but more than that, the ball that he hit when Kimbrell came in for the six out save and Tony Kemp hit uh, like rifles the ball down the right field. Gosh, this was unbelievable. Running at a dead sprint in and to his left as a very, very fast runner rounds first and heads for second. He turns, he picks up the ball, turns around and throws a absolutely dead, perfect strike to second base to get the leadoff runner out. Think about how that inning unfolds different. They scored in that inning. Like think about how that inning unfolds differently and think about how that series goes differently. I mean, they needed, you know, Benintendi's insane diving grab with the bases loaded to save the game. That's the difference between 3-1 and 2-2. I mean, that's that's everything. That's Once it was 3-1, you felt like, all right, there's no way the Astros come back from this. 
And but part of that was like Mookie Best just very calmly throwing that guy out at second <laughs> so easily. It wasn't close. Like he that there was no way Brandon Brandon McCarthy texted both of us and said that's the best right field play I've ever seen. Yeah. And yeah. considering the circumstances of the uh, situation, considering the who was running, considering how shaky Kimbrell had been for the last, you know, three weeks or something, it's in the discussion. It's such an incredible play. And then like even, you know, he he went from first to third on a single to left against the Yankees because he's like the so best fast. base runner who's ever lived. <laughs> he, uh, I mean, it, it's just nuts. They have, you know, Jackie Bradley Jr. is the best defensive center fielder the Red Sox have ever had, bar none. They made that outfield made like five or six insane plays in the ALCS. The outfield defense was one of the top reasons they won that oh, series. Yeah. And Jackie made none of them. He he was just out there <laughs> doing routine stuff. And Ben and Tendi and Betts in the corners were making insane plays every game. I, I that part of the reason this team is so fun to watch and is so exciting is because they do, um, you know, in this era of the three true outcome hitter, where every at bat seems to come down to a strikeout, a walk, or a home run, the Red Sox are still doing these amazing things in the parts of the game that are sort of have been marginalized but are still like vitally important that you don't necessarily like notice unless you're like really paying attention like base their base running is incredible their approach their 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 disciplined approach to hitting is incredible they had incredible scouting against the Astros pitchers they laid off 700 consecutive breaking incredible. balls low and away without swinging without chasing they have the best outfield defense I think I've ever seen. It's just, it's, and he's the, Mookie is the reason that the whole team functions. It's just, he is that guy. He's the straw that stirs the drink. Uh, and I, I don't know if he, if I, I, he probably is my favorite Red Sox of all time at this point, even though, they, I mean, it's hard to beat. He's, he has to beat Pedro and, and Ortiz. And that's not yeah. easy. No, that's um, not easy. And so I, and I think the totality of, of like Pedro and Ortiz, especially Ortiz's career and especially like talk about narratives, like his, <laughs> his postseason narrative is ridiculous. His, his 2013 world series is the greatest world offensive world series that anyone has ever had or will ever have. He was 11 for 16 um, with like eight walks or something. I mean, it was absurd. <laughs> So like there there are and you know the grand slam against the Tigers in game 2 the back to back walk off hits against the Yankees in the ALCS in 2004 like there's a, there's a hundred of those things and so Mookie still has like a in terms of like individual moments he still has a ways to go but in terms of just overall like play and in terms of like you're rooting for a guy who's 5'9 175 who somehow has become you know, a Mike Trout level best player in baseball kind of a guy. Like, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to not say that he's my favorite of all time. Well, yeah, he's 25. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, it, it, you, you hope he's got, you know, another 15 years of, of, of great baseball in him. Two thoughts. One, on the on the Tony Kemp play, the, the thing about that play is, and it, it's, it's, it's really important as you talk about, it's an amazing play uh, for so many reasons, as you talked about, where the way he had to field the ball, the way he had to world throw it, the momentum going away from the base, all of those things against a very fast runner. It was beautiful to watch. Yeah. That's there's something about there that that is there is like one step above. Like you know, you and I are both very, very much into into what we can see and what what we can count. And 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 you know, we don't like people talking about you know, stuff that is, that is 
you know, maybe relevant, maybe isn't, but you have no real idea. But like they'll show the plays that uh, Roberto Clemente made, you know, in the in from in right field, some of the throws that he made, or some of the early throws that Ishiro made, and and they're just something timeless and beautiful about them that no matter when you see him, you can see him 20 years later, 30 years later, you don't know the situation, you don't care. They're just like walking, living pieces of art. And and that's what I thought when watching it. It's like, oh my, I just want to stop. I want to hang that up in my house. That's how beautiful <laughs> that play was. And, and, you know, that's, I mean, there are just not that many people that can do that. I mean, so that's, that's the first thing I want to say about bets. The, the second thing that I want to say about bets is, and this is not, this is not a, a huge deal, but you remember, it's not that long ago, probably 20 years ago, 2020, eh, maybe even 25, but 20 years ago when it was really, really a big deal, 25 years ago, the 30-30 guy, right? The 30 homer, 30 stolen base guy. Like mm-hmm. that's, that we still, every so often somebody will mention, oh, a 30-30 season or whatever, but it's really, nobody cares. Nobody cares about stolen bases for whatever reason. And and we know there's so many other things that matter. And there, But there was a time when the 30-30 was the very essence of a ball player, a full ball player, right? And and it, it was kind of ridiculous because some of the 30-30 guys were not really the essence of the full ball. Like Howard Johnson was a 30-30 guy like four times or something. Right. Um, Mookie Betts is like the 30-30 guy that like you idealized the 30-30 guy, right? Like that's like when we thought of a 30-30 guy, we weren't really thinking about 30 homers and 30 stolen bases. We were thinking about this ball player who is at the peak of everything. Like, oh my gosh, he's unbelievably fast. Oh my gosh, he's unbelievably strong. He somehow combines all of these magical qualities into one. And then if you can win a gold glove, then you're dealing with like, you know, Willie Mays-esque type player. And like that's what Mookie Betts is a 30-30 guy. That's that's and and the fact he did it this year, 32 homers and 30 stolen bases, just made me think, gosh, he's he's really what we had in mind when we thought about 30-30 guys. But more specifically, he's not a monster. You know, like no, the 30-30 no. guy became Canseco, A-Rod, yes, yeah, guys like yeah. that, where they 40, were they, guys, they yeah. were superhuman. They were like, you know, these gigantic. 64255 right. like just just Linebackers. Like robots they were all yeah. robocop like <laughs> like of course robocop can be a 3030 guy he's you know but the mookie is what you think of as like the he he just does it on athleticism he's just like he's shorter than i am and he weighs less than i do and he is the best <laughs> athlete on the field every time he's on the field that's what's cool about him by the way just for the record today as we record this october 22nd is the 26th anniversary of Jack Morris having the chance to close out the 92 World <laughs> Series for the Blue Jays pitching at home, by the way, pitching at home against the right. Atlanta Braves. Right. He went four and two thirds, gave up nine hits and seven earned runs. No doubt, by the way, left in the game longer than he should have been because <laughs> he was Jack Morris. He gave up a two out grand slam to Lonnie Smith. Well, sure. And come on. I th- <laughs> <laughs> this is the guy he gave up. He let Otis Nixon steal two bases off him. He gave up a home run to David Justice. Like he got, he had the chance to close out the World Series at home. That's your big game. That's your like. This guy is the 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 toughest, winningest pitcher of the '80s. Blah 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 blah. That guy got lit up in the in a World Series clinching game and needed and needed uh, 
uh, his team to bail him out the next night. By the way, Mike Stanton, three inning save in that game for the Braves. Ooh. Smoltz picked, pitched six. Mike Stanton pitched three innings and got the save. Pretty amazing. Baseball's changed a lot. That is pretty amazing. That's why Giancarlo Stanton changed his name. He didn't want to. He didn't want to be confused with the excellent relief pitcher Mike Stanton. Do you remember who got the loss for the Braves in relief in in the extra innings of Game uh, Seven, Six, I guess Six, right? Game um, Six. Yeah, no. Charlie Liebrandt came in and oh, in. sure, only <laughs> got the Wait. loss. <laughs> we will crazy. at some point have to have a uh, a draft of crafty lefties, and and Ooh, Charlie Liebrand is on that list without without a question. The crazy All thing right. with that Blue Jays team, real quick, David Cohn started that game. Listen to who came in. Todd Stottlemyre came in for two thirds of an inning. Then David Wells came in for a third of an inning. Wow. Dwayne Ward pitched an inning. Tom Hankey pitched an inning and a third. Jimmy Key pitched an inning and a third. And Mike <laughs> Timlin ultimately got the save with a third of an inning. That's what an incredible like. They had so many good pitchers on that team. They did, but look at that. That was back in the – I mean, you want to talk about bullpenning. They're bringing starters out you know, left and right yeah. in order to get – There were to... seven, seven pitchers in that game, including two or three starters. Yeah, three starters yeah. yeah. All right. Give me uh, – it's, it's, it's not even fair for me to ask for a prediction from you because, uh, because it's your team, but uh, I'm going to do it anyway. Give me your prediction for uh, the World Series, which begins uh, – should begin the day this comes out. Um, who do you think? How many games? Uh, I'd say the Red Sox win in three. <laughs> That's, they win. They, they they're going to the be so good. Games, right, and, yeah, that the they'll Dodgers just are just like, it's fine. Just take it. It's fine. We had a good run. <laughs> <laughs> that seems legit. That seems yeah. legitimate. I do think the Red Sox win the series. I I don't know how long it takes, and and I think a lot of it depends on on that uh, on that. Uh, uh, Dodger rotation and and how good that is because I do think the Red Sox are better in most categories and in, by the way one of the ways that the Red Sox are better you mentioned outfield defense and how good their outfield defense is I think that was an underrated part of how the Royals won you know I think a lot of people thought the Royals were part of they weren't they didn't initiate or start the whole bullpen thing but but they were one of the one of the people that uh, one of the teams that used that multi closer bullpen that uh, that has become popular, and uh, but that was a terrific. I mean, it was a terrific, terrific defensive uh, outfield with Alex Gordon and Lorenzo Cain, and and uh, they were they got to everything. They just chased down everything, yeah. and it was a big deal. I mean, that because you look at that team now, even now you look back at the the back to back pennant winning Royals, and you go, how in the heck with that lineup and with that rotation how in the heck did that team you know go to consecutive world series and win one and a big reason for it was man you just hit any ball in that outfield it didn't matter it was an out they yeah. just got and, and on their infield by the way their infield defense was really good if it I was good correctly. yeah like was I, good. I mean i they the, <clears throat> the red sox have the advantage in most areas i think the dodgers are better top to bottom pitching staff probably yeah. than the red sox especially with sales health up in the air and and the price narrative, but uh, I, you know, I, I, you know, the the Red Sox, uh, the Dodgers are really good this year, like they were last year, and they would have finished sixteen games behind the Red Sox in the yeah. regular season. Like the Red Sox won one hundred and eight <laughs> games, and then have beaten two hundred win teams in the playoffs for a reason, which is they're a really good team. Yeah. They're good from top to bottom. They don't have a lot of weaknesses. They really are patient at the plate. They don't have 
you know, their lineup to, from one to nine isn't probably on paper as impressive. You wouldn't be as impressed by it as you would by the even the Dodger lineup, maybe. But they just like these guys like Eduardo Nunez and Ian Kinsler and these guys, Christian Vasquez, like their backup catcher. They have just a great approach. Their at bats are really, really solid at bats. And I think that e- even in a small sample size, you've got it. I mean, look, I say the Red Sox have the advantage. That it's probably what fifty four forty six. Oh, that's right. Like, that's right. That's right. Like I think <laughs> if they play a hundred seven game series, the Red Sox win fifty three of them. So you know anything can happen, et cetera, et cetera. But I think on balance, the Red Sox are slightly better. I think they're slightly better. I think they're slightly better. By the way, one last thing about the Red Sox, and then I've tweeted about this. I've texted you about this. I, I I see the numbers. I get the numbers. I get what uh, people are saying. I, every time I see Jackie Bradley Jr. hit, he hits great. I, I, I just, every time I see him, I'm like, not only does he hit bombs, which of course he did a couple times during the, during the, this last series, but he looks good to me. His approach looks good. I mean, I know that he, he swings a lot of bad pitches and, and, and especially breaking stuff and, and he strikes out a lot, but boy, not when I watch him, I don't know. Maybe I, I, I just have to trust the numbers, but he sure looks pretty good to me. There's also a, a um, video you can watch of him throwing a ball over the center field fence. Oh yeah. It's an outfielder. From, nobody question from home plate. <laughs> He throws a ball like 430 feet in the air or something. It's crazy. Everyone should go watch it. What a player. What a player. All right. Uh, it is time for our uh, Cleveland Browns update. Let's check in on the Cleveland Browns. How are they doing? There are really just two points I want to make about uh, the Browns' uh, loss this week to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, 26-23. So they lost the game. Uh, and there are two two uh, points to be made, one being that they lost it on a 59-yard field goal by a kicker who had missed an extra point and a 40-yard game-winning field goal earlier in the game. So only the Browns could do that. When they sent the kicker out for the 59-yard field goal, this was in overtime, there was like a minute plus left, and I thought, this is the stupidest decision I've ever seen. They're going to give the Browns the ball at midfield, uh, basically at midfield with a minute plus to go. They only have to go 20 yards to try to kick a a game winning field goal. Uh, This is ridiculous. And then he nailed the kick. So that's, that's the Browns. But the second point I want to make is late in the first half, the Browns were losing 16 to two, which is an awesome score, by the way, (laughs) 16 to two, they were losing and um, and then Tampa Bay, because every team is trying to help the Browns win. Every single team in the NFL wants the Browns to win. Uh, that's how they play. So the Brown, the Buccaneers turned the ball over deep, deep in their own territory with like less than a minute left. Uh, I mean, really deep, like at the 15 yard line or something. And the Browns got down to the you know 11, and it was fourth and two with 28 seconds left. And they had just been given this gift. They just take take a field goal. You, you we're just giving you one. And the Browns decided to go for it, which I don't. I'm not going to second guess that choice. It was it was um, basically a choice by Hugh Jackson in order to jumpstart the team and whatever. And I always think people should go for it more on fourth down. So I'm not going to second guess the choice exactly. But so what happens on the play is 
Baker Mayfield, the Browns quarterback, drops back. He's looking around. Nobody's open. He takes off running. He gets the first down. So with about 25 seconds left, he gets the first down. So, of course, and they had timeouts in my mind. I've got this running. And then all of a sudden, a Tampa Bay player, like, reaches out like a bear, like trying to paw somebody or something. And he knocks the ball out. And the ball rolls backward and rolls out of bounds on the wrong side of the first down marker. So so they take the first down away from Baker Mayfield because he fumbled the ball backward uh, uh, out of bounds in the, and I just thought, you know, there's so many times as a Browns fan, you can say, boy, that pretty much describes what it is to be a Cleveland Browns fan. But I thought that pretty much did describe what it is to be a Cleveland Browns That's fan. pretty good. Yeah. That's a pretty good, like one sentence explanation of what it's like. <laughs> I would say a couple other things um, and then we'll move on. Um, this is their fourth overtime game. <laughs> fourth played, overtime game. They and they could have tied overtime. all four, by the way. That's right. They could be two, one, and four right now, which would be <laughs> which would be the best. Um, the 59-yard field goal in overtime was the longest overtime field goal in the history of the NFL. Of course it was. Um, the kicker had also missed a, a 40-yarder. Right. Uh, and an extra point. And an extra point, right. Um, but here's – I mean, it's insane. The whole thing is insane, right? They They – they should have won again. They also should have lost again. They should have tied again. All of these things are true. But my here's my favorite thing. Um, I want to read you a quote. Uh, Hugh Jackson, coach of the Cleveland Browns, gave a quote about the 59-yard field goal in overtime that came after a Jabril Peppers fumble. Right. Um, uh, that I think is it's a really interesting quote, and I think we should really listen to it, and we should pay attention to it. We should analyze it. Here's the quote from Hugh Jackson, coach of the Browns about the 59-yard game-winning field goal in overtime. Quote, I said, there's no way he'll make that, he said. And he did, so they won. <laughs> and I really feel like, I mean, I think he's really, that's a really interesting angle, I think. It is. On the, on it is. Field, on that field goal, yeah. So uh, what do you think? So you think, and I'm, I'm you know, I, I don't want to try to climb into Hugh Jackson's head, but it seems to me like he didn't think he would make it. Yeah, that's what I'm getting from this is that when when they decided to kick the 59-yard field goal that Hugh Jackson, coach of the Browns, thought that they wouldn't be successful. He thought they wouldn't be successful. That's, that's how I'm reading it. Yeah, I mean, you can read I'm it a lot of ways. And then, and then what happened was they, then they did make the field goal, and at that point, <laughs> Hugh Jackson realized that that meant the game was over because he knows the rules of football. That's sort of how I'm choosing. That's, to I think that's that. right. I think I think he starts off in the process. Starts off going, they're not going to make this. That's how he's thinking, and then he watched it and said to himself, "They did make it, even though I thought they weren't going to make it." And then he said, "And they won." That's right. I think I think that's right. I, I think, think that's, that's right. I think that's what. Yeah, that's what we should. Uh, um, he in also, my- by the way, so he also later said. He's gonna dive in and be more involved in the offense. Oh my gosh! Don't get me started. See that if you if you want me to talk for the next hour, don't don't do that. <laughs> he don't said, do that. "Quote: I'll do whatever I need to do to get this <laughs> offense going. I'm the head coach of this football team." <laughs> All right, you're gonna make me do this. So in the athletic this week, if you go to theathletic.com, uh, uh, you can see my Browns diary, which I do every week. In my Browns diary, in the first paragraph of my Browns diary, not to give too much away, I write the words "fire Hugh Jackson" five different times in the in the in the opening sentence, um, and I think 
that in the end, I I mentioned the the idea that Hugh Jackson, who regardless, again, nice guy. I like Hugh Jackson. I don't dislike Hugh Jackson. I want Hugh Jackson to be successful. I would love nothing more than to be wrong about Hugh Jackson. The idea that Hugh Jackson, who has been the offensive coordinator and head coach of this team the previous two years, where the team scored the second fewest and fewest points in the NFL in back-to-back years, uh, and had five different quarterbacks, all terrible in their own really exciting and interesting way, that he is going to come in now, having been forced to hire an offensive coordinator, he's going to come in and save the day for this offense that, by the way, has not scored a first quarter touchdown all season. All season, they have not scored a first quarter touchdown. They have scored six total points in the first quarter in seven games. The fact he's going to come in and save the day, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's almost like I'm thinking to myself, I didn't think they were going to make it. Then they did make it, and they won. That's really what I'm thinking. <laughs> I think that's right. I think that's exactly what happened, in, and he reported it accurately. He did report it accurately. He did report it accurately. All right. I can't do this anymore. All right. We're moving on. We're moving on to sports movie time. Sports movie time. We're going to try something this week. This is this is sort of a, a uh, you know, one thing that we try to be at sports movie time is timely. Uh, and And as you might know, being a Hollywood celebrity as you are, um, <laughs> The new Rocky, uh, the new Creed is coming out. Have you seen this? That the new yes, the, there's a new Creed, Creed two, Creed two, um, which uh, you know is is, uh, is something. So, um, so I thought that for sports movie time this week, we would go back to the original Rocky, the very first Rocky movie, uh, which uh, you know Academy Award winning uh, movie. Which, by the way, that does not seem to hold up all that well not not to say not saying that the movie itself doesn't hold up well it it does it's just saying now that a rocky movie won best picture just seems a little weird right don't you think it seems yeah, little... i mean you know the if you're looking for um like uh uh the oscars to be an actual sort of arbiter of what's a good or well bad that's true movies yeah. i mean you're yeah. you've come to the wrong place friend <laughs> <laughs> Day, I really thought I was coming to the right place to no, somebody who would tell me. No, no, you know, yeah. Forrest Gump beat Pulp Fiction. Yeah, that yeah. wasn't the best. That was not the best choice, by the way, uh, in general. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but getting back to the point, uh, the first Rocky in the first Rocky, my favorite part of the first Rocky is that Rocky loses at the end of the of the movie. Um, he loses the decision, and he's he's. He's bleeding and he's looking for for um, uh, for um, his wife and mm-hmm. and it's like a very touching thing and they're saying the the decision in the background and and so on. So he loses the the fight, which to me so makes the movie so much better. It just it just it just takes the movie to a different level. However, I had forgotten. I don't know why I'd forgotten this. He actually lost on a split decision, which which by the way hurts that that uh that for me a little bit that he lost in a split decision as if it was like <laughs> controversial i don't like that i kind of wanted like he lost like he he put up a gallant 
wonderful fight, but he lost, but he, he lost a split decision. So I think the question for this week's sports movie time is based on what we were seeing, what we saw, which is not the entire fight, but certainly the highlights of the fight. Um, who won that fight? Who won the first fight between Rocky Balboa and Apollo Creed in the original Rocky? Okay. So a couple things about this. Number one, I don't care at all. That's important. You should know this. I don't care. I think boxing is stupid. I think boxing movies are stupid. I guess yes. there's artistry. I, I think the story behind Rocky is wonderful yes. that no one believed in Sylvester Stallone. He he wrote it himself and no one wanted him to. They didn't believe in the script. They didn't believe that he could play the part. They didn't believe he could direct it. They didn't believe anything. It's a wonderful story and he deserves all of the success that it brought him and and uh, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm happy he won the Oscar. That's great. Good, good work to you, sir. Um, but boxing is stupid and uh, and punching people in the face is stupid. It and is. All I remember from Rocky, I watched Rocky, you know, I don't know, 25 or 30 years ago. All I remember is that every single punch thrown by both people lands. <laughs> like <laughs> Nobody's playing defense. single no. time one of them punches the other one and they hit him right in the face. And they and then the other guy hits the other guy in the face and then they just keep hitting each other. And they never block a single punch, in my memory at least. <laughs> And not right. one punch is blocked. And so, like, then you watch an actual boxing match, and when one person lands one punch squarely to the face of the other person, that person falls down and is knocked <laughs> unconscious and has brain damage for the rest of his life. And so the, what I remember thinking is, like, this is the equivalent of a, of a baseball movie of, like, the natural if every at-bat by every player was a home run. <laughs> Just home run, home run, home run, and the final score of the baseball game is – the Knights win 442 to 441 because he was the last guy up and he hit one more home run. And, and uh, I don't like it. I don't care. I I'm sure I, I didn't see Creed. I've heard it. Creed's awesome. I believe you. Michael B. Jordan is the best. That guy's awesome. The, the, I'm sure that the movie is great. I'm sure that he's great in it. I'm sure that it's dramatic and harrowing and sad and interesting and cool and whatever. I'm sure the second one would be great too. I hope they win a hundred Oscars. I don't care. I'm not, I don't like seeing people punch each other in the face. It's never interested me. Not once. I don't get why anyone likes to watch other people punch each other in the face. And I especially don't get why people like to watch each other punch each other in the face when it's the amount of realism involved in how they punch each other in the face and how many times they punch each other in the face is so outrageously skewed towards absurdity and cartoonishness. <laughs> That eventually you're like, isn't there a movie? It's not that one, but it's some other Rocky movie where they, at one point, they punch each other in the face simultaneously and they're both knocked unconscious. Yeah, that's that, Rocky 2. Rocky, that's Rocky two. 2. Okay, yeah. yeah. That's well, so they both scramble to their feet. That's how the Rocky 2 ends. That's how dumb is that? That's so dumb. <laughs> you punch each other in the face really hard at the same exact moment and they're both knocked out on the ground. And no, does anyone come into the ring? Does there an ambulance? Is there a doctor nearby who comes into the ring and says, "Oh God, these two people have CTE"? Like watching them get CTE as as it's happening in real time. Like, I mean, come on! I know that doesn't make for a good movie, but I just don't understand the blood sport and the violence and the bloodlust and the and just the punching. I just there's so much punching, man. There is Enough, a lot of punching. Too much punching. They let like of course. Here's the thing. Of course, it's a split decision. They each punch each other in the face 500 times. So how do you how do you judge? Every single punch was a really hard punch that landed exactly the way that a punch needs to land. How do you decide one way or the other on that? I am so loving that I'm seeing the poster of the original Rocky with just a little quote. Too much punching, Mike Sure, Just yes, like right there. That's my official <laughs> review. Too, there was too much punching in this boxing movie. 
I I I I just I don't disagree with any of that by the way. And 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 you would think apparently like one of the one of the overall themes of Rocky and especially as Rocky keeps going is how brilliant the uh corner people are in the movie, right? I mean that that's you know obviously one of the corner people uh you know brings Rocky to the to the extreme. Later on we find about out about the the Apollo Creed's corner guy. He gets into the Rocky picture. Everybody's everybody's involved and these guys are geniuses and, and all this. They didn't one time tell him like block the other guy from punching you like once. Like just just put your gloves up in front of your face so they don't hit you every single time they throw a punch. What what are they tra- how are they training? What what, what goes into the training before the fight? Is it like did did it was it the case where they train and train and train and train? He prepares for the fight. He gets in, and then after the first round, they're like, "Hey, man, he's trying to punch you in the face. He did not expect this. We we should have worked on this." But when he's gonna he's gonna do it again, just like that that our analysis has has like led us to the conclusion that he in the next round he's gonna continue to try to punch you in the face area. So what you need to do is dodge his punches. Don't let him punch you in the face because if he does. You could get hurt and lose this boxing match. That was, that's what that, appears to be going on. That, I don't. That, I don't understand it. Yeah, no, that's exactly what they should be doing. They should be saying like, "Don't, don't let him punch you in the face." And then you come back after, and then you say, "No, no, you did. He's still punching you in the face." Hey, you're, man, you, you didn't listen to us. You get. You did it again. You let him punch you in the face uh, sixty-five times. So he, listen, he's get, he was successful for him in the first two rounds. That strategy has been successful. So he's going to do it again. So in this round, make it a, make it like maybe your main objective to stop him from punching you in the face. Your number one priority should be to, for him to no longer punch you in the face yeah. every time yeah. he swings his, his fist. Let's, let's practice right now here in the break. Let's practice. I'm going to be him and I'm going to move my fist towards your face. And you dodge it. Okay, ready? Here we go. Nope. See, you let me punch you in the face. That's again, you need to avoid it. When I when his fist moves towards your face, you gotta move your head to one side or the other. You've got to you've got to you've got to and block it. You can use your hands. Oh, that's to block. another good idea. Yes, block block his <laughs> fists with your fists. This is a key aspect of boxing that we did not cover in our extensive <laughs> training for this championship bout. So what exactly do you think they did spend their time in in training working on? What what do you think I they think were they were just only working on hit Rocky punching Apollo in the face? <laughs> They're like, "Listen, the the name of the game is punching in the face. So you got to punch him as many times as you can in the face until you knock him down." And then when the fight started, they were like, "Oh man, he oh, had we a didn't strategy." Think. They were, <laughs> we didn't consider this. He's had this he has the same exact strategy we have. It's the Spider-Man meme where we're like, it's two identical it's strategies. two identical. Each other. Yeah. So w- as much as we focused on, we should have spent half of our time <laughs> focusing on how to punch Apollo in the face and half of our time on how to avoid Apollo punching us but, in the face. But that's water under the bridge. We've already yeah, spent nothing all- we can do about it now. We're in the middle of the fight now. We just got to run. We got to run with what we have, which is, yes, sure, continue to punch him in the face, but also prevent him from punching you in the face. And then, like, halfway through the fourth round, they're like, he's not going to get it. He's just can't teach an old dog new tricks. He's just never going to learn to avoid those punches. So we got to we got to just hope that. And then the split decision, again, the split decision makes a lot of sense because, like, on everyone's scorecard, it was like, well, Rocky landed 1,220 punches. And Apollo landed 1,220 punches also. 
which is as many punches as you can throw in that in 10 rounds. So I guess we'll just go off like whose punches were seemed harder or something. And, you know, look, that's the way it came down. Split decision. That is so awesome. I I realize now I have asked totally the wrong question. The wrong question is not who won the fight. The question is, what would the punch stat numbers look like from the right? It's like, oh, and so Rocky has landed 99.7% of his punches. Right. And Apollo has landed 99.7% of his punches. And the other ones that they didn't land, it's it's like it was a computer error. They actually did land. But yeah, well, it was like the the angle, like the angle that the camera had on the the, was a little blocked by the ref or something. And so they didn't they didn't see. But they they landed that punch. Don't worry. Oh, yeah, it was it was landed. There were no missed punches in that entire fight. No. All right. Well, we've solved that problem. So there we go. So, uh, Michael, as always, thank you. Thanks for having me.